your wonderful talks, you know, oh. uh, for the lockdown period has really helped all of us and uh, especially Savitri Veda and Sanatana Dharma oh, and talks have thank really, you. really helped yeah. us in our sadhana. So uh, we are full of gratitude to you. Yes. And thank we you. Always we always look forward to your <clears throat> uh, talks every week, and that is helping us a lot. And and Savitri Veda is just so. Thank you, thank you. It's all. Yeah. So it's eleven thirty. So Sandhya is going to chant Om Shanti Shanti. Shanti, Shanti. Shanti Oh Shanti 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 Thank you Sandhya Thank you Um so I've explained to Alok by uh, how we uh, uh, conduct these workshops and what we've been doing recently. In fact, most of the lockdown, we have been going through uh, the mother and um, and we're sort of nearing the end uh, of chapter six. Um, and I also explained to Alokbhai that um, two weeks ago when we had our workshop, uh, we were reading some of the last paragraphs. There are other great personalities of the Divine Mother, but they were more difficult to bring down and have not stood out in front with so much prominence in the evolution of the Earth Spirit. There are among them presences indispensable for the supramental realization. Most of all, one who is her personality of that mysterious and powerful ecstasy and ananda, which flows from a supreme divine love. The ananda that alone can heal the gulf between the highest heights of the supramental spirit and the lowest abysses of matter. The ananda that holds the key of a wonderful divinest life and even now supports from its secrecies the work of all the other powers of the universe. But human nature bounded, egoistic, and obscure is inapt to receive these great presences or to support their mighty action. Only when the four have founded their harmony and freedom of movement in the transformed mind and life and body can those other rarer powers manifest in the earth movement and the supramental action become possible. For when her personalities are all gathered in her and manifested, and their separate working has been turned into a harmonious unity, and they rise in her to their supramental godheads, then is the mother revealed as the supramental Mahashakti and brings pouring down her luminous transcendences from their ineffable ether. Then can human nature change 
into dynamic divine nature because all the elemental lines of the supramental truth consciousness and truth force are strung together and the harp of life is fitted for the rhythms of the eternal. Yes, so is there a question on... Ah, yes. yes. Is there a question on... Yeah, ah, so yes. it was just to start so, off with is... is um, um, what what does Chiyarabindu mean about the Vizvera, other great personalities? Yes. So uh, this was asked to the mother, and there's a whole long you know conversation centered around the other great personalities, especially the uh, mysterious Ananda. You see, uh, we talk about supramental, but in one of the passages, mother says it is the divine love which transforms. So, what does the supramental truth consciousness do? It lays the base and foundation on which the divine love can have a complete play. It is Ananda is the origin and love is the saviour of the universe. But to receive this Ananda and love fully in our consciousness, there must be a base of truth. That's why we see from the first chapter onwards, Shubhinder speaks about, you know, falsehood and truth not being together and one has to reject. It's all so that we can lay the right base. If this base is not there and Ananda comes down, I mean, it has come down, let us say, in the life of Sri Krishna, he brought Ananda. But human nature not being ready, it doesn't receive it rightly. It enters into ego channels, it enters into desire, you know, forms and we know what it has become and tends to become. Uh, so, we have to be prepared for that and that's why the truth consciousness. So, when mother was asked that, you know, these other great personalities, when are they going to come and about their coming, the mother says, you know, it was in 40s when this uh, mysterious Ananda of uh, which he speaks here, some would identify as Radha, but you know, let's uh, talk about in, in the terms that Shurbindo has, because again, we have our mental formations immediately. I mean, all the original uh, files have been corrupted. You see the serials and you understand that, you know, the Leela of Krishna and Radha have been reduced to a vital plane, whereas, you know, in their origin, uh, it is something so beautiful. So she wanted to come, but the conditions were not ready. And she waited and waited and mother said that she continues to wait. She wants to come, but nobody is ready. So then at that point of time in the 40s, when she wanted to come and nobody was ready, the mother says very interestingly that I ended up blaming the inconscient. So she did not blame the sadhak. She said people around were not receptive. But why they were not receptive? She went and saw that it is the inconscient. Because of which human consciousness is in such a grip that it doesn't open to truth. It doesn't open to higher things. So a big battle started. It's a whole phase of the ashram life, uh, you know. Uh, and in that battle, it's uh, one of the steps was when Shurabindo drew the entire inconscient onto himself. Uh, like Shiva, you know, swallowing poison and withdrew from the physical body because there was no other way to grapple with it. And that's why the mother gave a message that if uh, the people were more receptive, uh, then this wouldn't have happened. If earth and humanity were more receptive, then this may not have been necessary. But eventually it was a strategic sacrifice. After which eventually, ultimately the truth consciousness did manifest or start the manifestation on 29th February 1956. But for Ananda, she was asked that, um, 
what are the conditions required for it to manifest? She said, you have to be a super Parsifal, which means absolutely nothing to do with pleasure of any kind, because pleasure and ananda are two poles. Pleasure is the most degraded version and it's very simple to understand. It's not about asceticism. In fact, this is not a yoga of asceticism. It's like we can choose for a very, you know, low kind of energy fuel to drive us. Low kind of energy fuel is desire and pleasure. Or we can upgrade it and choose a better and better and higher and higher and a fuel which eventually leads to no pollution. So the same thing we can apply here that pleasure is... And pain. Pain comes as a consequence. Pleasure is a highly degraded version. Originally there is only bliss. But it degrades into pleasure and brings as its consequence or a corrective, if I may say so, pain. So pain actually is a corrective that we are taking the wrong route and it opens a door. So a complete freedom from pleasure, a complete renunciation of pleasure, but not renunciation with an ascetic point of view, but renunciation so that we can actually receive the ananda of existence, the bliss of existence. So this condition nobody could uh, fulfill. And that's why the truth consciousness which will eventually turn man to receive only the light of the truth. It will take away all these other things into which you know we are right now deeply engaged with. So then she also said that you should ask one more question. And you know the disciples are wondering. She said then one of the disciples caught the you know the vibration and he said mother but she could have entered you. So that is a passage where the mother reveals about the work of the avatar. She says that, well, yes, she could have entered me, but if entering into me is not going to make any difference to others, why should she come? Because my utility, she uses that word, that my usefulness is only if others can receive it. But if they are not receptive, just for my own sake, I don't need anything. Exactly what Shurabindu says, that I have no need of, you know, Satchidanand or anything. Because like Sri Krishna in the battlefield, he says, I have no need of any karma. But I am doing it because, you know, for the uh, march of mankind towards truth, towards light. So this mysterious personality, Ananda, which is the crown and apex of existence, will come eventually once truth consciousness has laid its base. That's how in Savitri also he says, but first high truth must set its foot on earth. Till that base is laid and if Ananda comes prematurely, as you know, Mother says that eventually divine love will transform. But if there is lack of preparation, lack of receptivity, then the vessel will break down. So in ancient times, the rishis used to prepare themselves through tapas. So there were two, there are two ways of preparing the vessel. You know, any vessel which you have to prepare from its raw clay to, uh, you know, the proper strong vessel, you have to pass it through fire. So there are two kinds of processes in that. One is a very conscious fire, which is tapas. Tapas is concentrated energy of spiritual endeavor. Tapasya has nothing to do with asceticism, shunning this, shunning that. But a one-pointed energy, which is focused in every activity to discover the truth and to be you know, driven by truth. In any way, even when we have a you know, little conception of truth, doesn't matter. It's a very good starting point. Sincerity. So when we move in that direction, then this heat that accumulates, which normally we dissipate in all kinds of activities and things, it is this heat, this tapas, which bakes the vessel and makes it ready to receive the ananda. 
You see, the Vedic Rishi Somras is the ultimate, you know, Godhead whom they invoked. The other way, which is not a desirable way, is through, uh, you know, suffering. So, I put it little, uh, uh, I mean, semi-humorously, but it's, it's a serious thing that uh, we have bhoga and yoga. In between, there is roga. So, we have a choice to, you know, either through yoga. Yoga means all these energies are yoked to something higher. Then the vessel, the patra gets prepared and ready. If we don't, then there is another passage through which we will be led. Because, you know, it is the divine will. We can't help it. It is going to drive us towards perfection. Intended perfection. But that choice is up to us whether we enter, engage into a conscious process or the process will take place through the power of crashing circumstances. So this mysterious personality is the ananda and this ananda and love, the difference is very subtle. Ananda, in its own right, ananda, oneness, bliss, it is, you know, the divine himself, an aspect of the divine, if you want to put it like that, but, but the most important aspect of the divine. But when ananda leans upon earth to dance in the sand, in the even enters the slime, enters into darkness, it becomes love. So love is ananda of oneness, Entering into the manifold ananda, it is through love. When it enters into creation, it becomes love. It's an act of love. So, love and ananda are two ways. In fact, three of them, it's a triumvirate. Love, beatitude and ananda. They, they go together. So, ananda is the origin. Love is when it leans down and beauty is the final product. It's like, you know... <laughs> Uh, beatitude in everything, beauty of thought, feelings, beauty of life. But before we can receive that ultimate ananda and ultimate love, we have to go through an intermediary preparation. And that preparation is done by Mahalakshmi, which we see in the four aspects. First, Mahalakshmi comes and prepares us for a love which is closer to a human kind of love. You know, if you read through Mahalakshmi, she is more, little more tangible because, you know, it's, but divine love, divine love can be, you know, tremendous. So, Mahalakshmi's grace, Mahalakshmi's uh, charm, Mahalakshmi's sweetness, Mahalakshmi's, uh, you know, creations of harmony and beauty, they prepare us for the still greater perfection which will come with Ananda and the open play of divine love. In one of the letters to Dilip Kumar Roy, Shurabindu indicates that. And he says that, you know, to ultimately to establish divine love and Ananda is our goal. But we have found by experience that it cannot be done till the truth consciousness has laid its base. So this is the whole where we stand. So supramental, then that will come. Sri Krishna brought to the world freedom and delight and we know what happened later on is Mahabharata. So, <laughs> and later on even in Sri Krishna's school we see that there was an infighting and massive destruction. So this time... <laughs> they don't want to do it like that and they want first the solid foundation. Yes. So are they, are they personalities um, that are mentioned because it's a plural here. So are they, yes, yes. Are they Ananda and, and love? Are they are the actual personalities? Yes, and be beauty. You see, when we read the Dashmaha Vidya of the Upanishads, which we, again, in Mahalakshmi, we'll see the sense of beauty. But beauty, when we take the Upanishadic understanding of the ten levels at which the great goddesses, goddess, uh, you know, reveals herself. So the lowest is Dhumavati. She is all covered with smoke of ignorance. 
But the highest is Tripur Sundari. The beauty unparalleled in all the three worlds. So beauty is another personality. So we have beauty, ananda, we have love. All these have to manifest. Purity, this is another. So there are aspects of the Divine Mother which are yet waiting. First these four will prepare our earth nature. Maheshwari, Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, Mahasaraswati. And when our nature is relatively ready with them, then it opens to the supramental infinities. And then it you know, begins to become ready for the ananda and divine love. So the, the other, other question as a, as a human that um, you know, we have is, is um, are these personalities sort of doing a trial and error type of thing that you know, they come down, try and, try and come down, but, and they find us unreceptive, and then you know, we'll have to come back and try again. Is that what it is? Yes, we can use the word from a human point of view, it's like a trial and error. <laughs> but uh, to be a little more, you know, compassionate towards us humans, they are, you know, as when mother was, I'll answer it in a very uh, different way. When mother was asked, uh, you know, is God slow or man slow? She said from the human standpoint, it is God who is slow. From the divine standpoint, it is man who is slow. But in the supreme wisdom, everything is as it should be. So what we call as trial and error, like with any human endeavor, is actually a preparation and many steps of preparation. So now it's a question of whether the preparation can take place in one go or the preparation will take several steps. Now usually it takes several steps. You know, to give an example, if you read Auroville Charter, now, there have been attempts earlier to create the same thing. You know, one of them being when Mother was as Queen Hatsheput and there was a sun temple with the sun charter. Now, what she had, she was asked that this conception was already there. She said, yes. So, why didn't it manifest? She said, because, uh, why, why was it brought down? Because the time was not ready. She said, because the memory had to be preserved in the mind of the race. So if we look at it, let's take another thing, Ramaraja, conception of an ideal world, ideal kingdom. Now, it didn't take place even during the reign of King Rama. I mean, there was a small little problem leading to all kinds of imperfections. Yet, it creates the stamp on the race and takes us one step further. So, if we look at it only as a trial and error, it's not like an all or none phenomena. It's like one step, one step, one step. Now, we could take a giant leap, possibly. So, in that sense, yes, I mean, one wishes that there was a giant leap. And hopefully, this time, we should be able to cross over in one giant leap, at least a sizable number of uh, humanity. That's what she has, uh, you know, foreseen. Does anybody else have any questions? So, Anupji, so the reason why she is foreseeing that this time there will be more of humanity, I mean, is that, what is that main reason? Obviously, it's not logical. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, there are two levels of seeing of the avatar. We have seen it, um, we must have already read it in the mother, that the avatar acts, you know, the mother is not all above. She is also here. Partly she veils. Now, at one level, when the avatar is identified with the human level, because he has to work here, he veils his own higher, uh, you know, sense. And therefore, he acts as if nothing is ready, everything has to be prepared, will it, won't it, we don't know, that kind of state. But at the 
another level when he identifies with the supreme wisdom well it is inevitable so mother says even shrubindu was asked this he says yes there is a state of consciousness in which it is evident and it is bound to be now where is the problem the problem is that which has already been decided see one part now step one is that it has been decided that the earth will become divine this this is uncontested and it's logical because whatever is the origin it will eventually go into that direction which is what you know the whole logic of creation is but the problem is only in space time so time means a field of play of forces and space means how they come together how they are you know separated and this is the where the inconscient has its say but at the same time because she was not depending on human beings but on the forces which are holding us back so her conviction even at a human level let's say as an avatar why did she say it well just as when rama was near ravana when uh, you know kumbhakarna was eliminated so there was a fair degree of chance that now you know the battle is won but meghnad was there then meghnad is eliminated now there is a reasonable amount of chance that ravana will be you know one over so similarly she saw that in the inconscient there are these four asuras you know asuras is uh, this term has lot of connotations but uh, well going back to you know the forces of darkness which the original four beings who became their opposites she was simultaneously working on them because she knew if you leave to human beings their choices then well it's like a you know Uh, god telling us well sorry you were not ready <laughs> and man saying but you could have pushed through the whole thing okay so uh, she was working on these four asuras and she was in that process she said very clearly that two of them the asura of unconsciousness has chosen to be converted and there was another asura darkness he also got converted now there were two who were remaining death and falsehood now in one of her experience much later i think it is 70 she speaks about indirect hint that even death is gone not indirect enough but a direct hint a hint enough that death has gone and toward the end 1972 there is a message where she says before dying falsehood rises to its full swing and uh, with regard to falsehood she gives a very interesting conversation she says you know this fellow has come to me and he has told me that i know eventually i have to surrender but i i have the freedom because universe is you know built upon freedom and i am going to create as much chaos as i can and the mother simply smiled now this is a game taking place on a very vast scale so we may ask why didn't she destroy him why, what is the big deal for the divine mother to destroy so this question was asked to her she said my child i can easily destroy but you know now we come to the human part within us there are lots and lots and lots almost every human being harbors within him this poison of falsehood she says if i apply this absolute power do you understand what it means everything that is supported by falsehood gets destroyed so you know this was her dilemma the divine dilemma on one side to apply the absolute power which may have meant the entire earth going into blazes which is not what she want the other is to gradually put pressure through whatever means available you know when a teacher teaches he does all kinds of tricks or when moms they know better <laughs> what all do they do with children so apply gradual pressure sometimes we yield sometimes we still hold back the falsehood and slowly 
at least she wants a sizable number of humanity to be ready to take the leap. And that's what she has prophesied how it will come about. So she says, now that the supramental truth consciousness has started manifesting, which started, the certitude started with that. So what it is going to do, it is going to increase the pressure, mount the pressure upon humanity. Till eventually, uh, a sizable person will be open and ready for being taken up into the new creation. Now that sizable person could be 2,000, 10,000, 50,000. I mean, we can take figures. 50,000 is the Auroville uh, figure she chose about. Uh, there is a tipping point. So all that, let's say that there is a figure X. And once that is ready, till then there will be pressure on the whole human race. Once there is a sizable you know, proportion of people who are reasonably ready, they are suddenly taken up into the new creation. What happens to the rest? She says a large number of humanity is going to collapse. She did foresee that. What about those who are left in the middle, limbo? She says, well, in humanity, there are two kinds of people. One who are ready for the effort of transformation. They are taken up for the new creation. What about those? They are goodwill. They have the goodwill. They are good human beings. And they do want to come up. But they are not ready for the full effort. So they become a higher humanity. Which is going to become a link between the chimp and the supramental beings. What about the distorted, perverted kind of humanity? She says it's an abortive attempt. And it will collapse back into the animal creation. Now you know this is very much like what uh, Sri Krishna says in the Gita. And she has said it has been prophesied in the Gita. How does the Gita put it? Paritranaya sadhunam vinashaya cha dushtitam dharma sansthapna thaye sambhavami yuge yuge So this is exactly what will be the action of the new consciousness. Now why the delay? Because she wants as many people to get into the supramental ship out of love and compassion. She doesn't want, you know, she knows so that, you know, there are how many, 10, 15, maybe 100. That experience of their, uh, her is there in February, uh, I think 1960, where she sees, uh, or 59, where she sees that there are beings who are getting ready for the new creation. But there are others who are not, they are being sent back. So the delay is, uh, well, maybe we may say God, but it is out of compassion. Because if she applies the absolute pressure, destroys these beings, large number of humanity, almost everybody goes away. So she comes wearing the masks sometime of Corona, sometimes of something else, you know, to turn us inward. At one of the places, Mother says, at the hour of God, she says that such difficult moments come to earth so that we can turn inwards and seek the divine help. And she doesn't give up on us. That's why she is putting pressure slowly, like, you know, you, you, uh, you raise the flame too high. Then the, the khichdi which is being cooked is burnt. You make it too slow. Then again there is a problem. <laughs> so the right temperature, the right pressure which only the divine can handle. So that is the reason for the delay and that is uh, why. Uh, so we can't hurry up because it's a collective thing. Even if you are more ready, if you are less ready. Yet you know we have to wait till all uh, reasonable number are in the ship. Or the bus if we want to put it. And then it's like, let's start. And that would be the day when we will start seeing many more things than what we are witnessing now. It is still like, come up, come up, hurry up, hurry up. Still that call, which is going on. And that call is not few, you know, for the divine 10 years, 20 years. <laughs> the call goes on. Yes. Hello, Jesus. Going back, this is an eternal question, which, is, which always bothers me. Is <laughs> back to creation. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love uh, sorry I love I love the phrase eternal question yes <laughs> this is okay. like if everything starts it starts in purity yeah is it because each manifestation of her i don't know what the right word is decided to be individual which is why this ignorance and falsehood came in in the first place i mean you know what is the point if we were born in purity then why go into the unconscious and this whole game i mean this thing right. of god's lila is yeah just not sufficient for me to get my head around yeah yeah i get your point see this is the truly an eternal question why he started the game at all <laughs> now i have a humorous way of answering it because you know from a human perspective when we are tortured when we see suffering around then this question arises supposing everything was wonderful we would have said uh, it's, it's so nice you know thank god the lila started now take an example very simple example you want to make a house or you want to make a mega city right now what happens all of us are called let us imagine that a mega city and we are all told look here you know we want to start this project uh, so everybody says thumbs up yes great so we thank the mayor and we all are part of the project now we don't know there are many things which are going to take place but once we say yes then we go ahead because this mega city would mean really a manifestation otherwise the mega city uh, you know is all everybody is sitting uh, inside the lord as one uh, or you want to put it another way we are the lord and we all decided that's how it is in savitri you know there was a round table conference where we all as you know little little little, little spark came together and he showed us look here great adventure keen so what kind of adventure look immense shadow want to take a bungee jumping we said okay this is something new we are getting bored out here it's a way of story so we said let's go in so we knew there is a problem so we asked him ki look here we are jumping into it what is the guarantee he said i'll be there with you i will also jump we jumped together and the divine mother i'll be there so now we look at it from this side of the story it's a cruel game and nobody can deny it you know if we see the so called hard facts of existence the moment you cross on to this side you realize it's a play it's like you know at one level it's about success failure defeat which is what uh, you know makes the game very unpleasant because we are striving for for things which the game was never meant for but when we look at it from another perspective this is a joy of the play what does it matter whether one won the cup lost the cup then everything helps in the growth of consciousness that's why the mother said the problem is uh, you know we have put the cart before the horse and what is it we think the aim of life is to become happy now when we see there is unhappiness we start ultimate last buck stops with god why did you make this game which is so unhappy game whereas the aim of life is to progress now the more you progress the more you are happy so this is one now the moment we plunge now the other part that why inconscient now you know when you want to play an extreme game i again as a story i am saying would you watch a match if there is a you know match between india and uh, i don't know new guinea cricket match it there is no fun in that so there is a fun in taking the greatest possible challenge you know this is there in human soul immortal soul when we discover it we realize that oh this is so wonderful that's why it says find your psychic being because at the mind level it's all mind boggling and confusing 
there will never be a perfect answer but the moment the soul comes into play it says wow it's like we are chosen for this great adventure it's so wonderful then you don't mind you know in uh, i had a very interesting conversation one oroville inter- international meeting and uh, you know one person was saying oh it's so difficult oroville is so difficult this problem that problem hundred problems so one of them made a very interesting remark he said oroville is interesting because it's challenging you see the same thing so thus for the soul for the mind it is it can be disgusting annoying pestering for the soul it is challenging invigorating even intoxicating so it depends on the stance we look at it at the level of the mind we can go as close as this that well god took the extreme challenge and we as souls knew that we are indestructible immortal so let's embark the journey what is their forms will get broken we'll have many experiences on the way sweet bitter fruits of life but eventually the thing will be far far more complex and beautiful it's like you know when we have uh, why this much complexity well it's like you know when we want to create perfection out of four uh, cards so you know we want to make a or four bricks we want to make a little place now what are the combinations very few imagine doing with 64 bricks you make a fascinating world imagine we 10000 you know we in computer we have how many 64 or i don't know how many we have now you can play with it so as the soul grows it wants to take a greater and greater challenge of difficulty at the same time look at ignorance in this way that it is also a shield how is it a shield now see for a long time when we are in ignorance we don't even think about perfecting the world we want to somehow lead a cushy life so this ignorance shields us from the greater effort and this effort of somehow managing life doesn't matter god is there not there you know or we pray to god to get some help at the most and when we have to complain ultimately last fellow <laughs> down up the but the day we awaken to the possibility of greater perfection actually we are around the corner so the mother said something very interesting that when aspiration wakes up in a human being it is the sign that it is the last birth for freedom from ignorance so the fact that we have begun to feel some of us see majority of human beings don't care what you know if we talk about divine perfection and all it's like let's make it humanly perfect with human ways but so there is no divine element in it so this is a shield ignorance protects us from a greater labor but the day we open up and have this aspiration that there is a greater possibility and a greater aspiration comes then we understand the enormity of the effort but actually we have already covered a large distance so you see it works both ways so ignorance for a long time the baby develops in the womb that's the most challenging stage when it is being born and think about the baby one year i mean <laughs> doctors <laughs> all around Uh, well when we grow up we think about our challenges but think about the most challenging moment when the baby is coming out of the womb into this birth we just don't know what's going to happen cord around the neck breathing not breathing you know asphyxia score one year doesn't know it has not it doesn't even have a depth perception and yet the baby is carried through there would be many of course uh, infant mortalities but the baby is carried through till it reaches a point of conscious effort so ignorance even in ignorance progress is going on but we are saved the labor and of oh my god i have to leap this much 
So it's it works both ways. So ignorance was necessary for a long time to allow us to develop through the little challenges of life. And when we have navigated through the little challenges, you know, small children are told first standard, second standard, third standard, oh my God, what a big thing I have achieved. Cambridge, oh wonderful. And then when they have got all the degrees, then what happens? Now you have the real challenge. So this is a two-stage two progress. And uh, we, those of us who feel like that have hopefully, um, who aspire, they have crossed this first step. And we must know that for us, it is round the corner. Whereas for many others, they don't even care about it. So you see, it, it works that way. But those who are round the corner begin to feel, which is very good, you know, compassion that look, you know, so much of, you know, humanity, uh, what is this suffering? But just try and ask them, would you want to participate in a new creation? They want a bottle of beer, that's it. So it works both ways, okay? So there is a wisdom which is there in this plan, as close as possible. Yeah, that you, you, you pointed out very correctly that ignorance was necessary. So, the Dev Mata Aditi, so Dev, Devas, gods and asuras, they, they were born together in the same ashram of Vasishta. Aditi yes. was the mother of all gods, and her sister, Diti, was the mother of all Deityas. Yeah. They were both granddaughter Kashyap. of uh, uh, Lord Brahma. Yes. So it was very purposefully ignorance. So it, it, they, they, they meant that ignorance should bond with mm. the truth as well. So yes. I won't say truth, but the gods. So yeah. truth is above the gods and asuras. And asuras. That's right. Yes. So satyam param dhimai. They said the, the truth is the ultimate consciousness, and that should be the only goal of devs and asuras. Everyone. And Gandhi yes, so says the truth. Truth is a sense of all moralities, which applies to mankind of today. If you follow just truth, you don't need any religion. So, yes, yeah, I, I fully agree. Ignorance is very important. Yeah. So, 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 vidya, avidya and vidya. They say the vidya is the root cause of all human sufferings and falsehood. Yes. Yes, they, this is a very fascinating story incidentally and uh, I am resisting the temptation to go into it unless somebody, you know, Diti and Aditi uh, and their children born to Rishi Kashyap, you know, uh, they have the same father and they have two different mothers. And this, like many stories of the Vedic cycle are, and Puranic story, they are very symbolic stories. So, Asura and, uh, or the, Asura is a different thing, you know, initially Asura and Sur, in the original Vedas, they are not opponents. They are two aspects of one reality. Asuras represented force and the Devas represented knowledge. And in, in the one consciousness, they are united. It, that's why it is beyond Asuras and Devas. But later on, because force without knowledge has a tendency to you know lose track, whereas knowledge still can be a safeguarding thing. And that's why they wrestle and embrace, because they cannot do without each other. So, but man's consciousness coming to its practical implication, the practical implication is diti, datya, do, too. That's what ignorance is about, avidya is, you know, beautifully. Whereas aditi, the infinite, undivided consciousness, where there is the consciousness of the one infinite. So, this is a two-stage process. We are born in the consciousness of avidya 
or rather we are born as asuras but by spiritual conversion we become devas and go beyond so this is man's journey it is not like some are devas and others are asuras <laughs> well all of us have within us the divisive consciousness and by spiritual conversion we become devas and what are the signs now i am bringing it to the pragmatic level it's beautifully described in the gita chapter 16 and i feel it's a must read you know how do the asuras operate their operating system is all about me and myself how do the devas operate the operating i'm not the puranic devas are you know pretty i mean worse than human being sometimes but <laughs> but the deva type is that which operates from the larger sense deva type does not live for his own selfish aim that's why the devas are working incessantly in creation to bring light like you know ganesha to remove obstacles by the power of knowledge why should he work he can say i am uh, you know child of uh, lord shiva and uh, mother parvati what business i have to work in you know everybody's life and start removing obstacles but you'll never hear this about the asuras asuras want to grab everything including from the heavens they want to get everything that uh, the the higher worlds can give but without the effort without the readiness and preparation they want to snatch it so this is also there in many of the stories one of the stories of shiv puran you know that also takes up that why doesn't mother just give us the new world so once uh, adit one story i'll share so uh, diti datyon ki mata you know she goes and complains to lord shiva she says you are being very partial so shiva says nobody ever told me this <laughs> so how come he said see every all the good things are for the gods and what about my children so like any other mom so he says okay what do you want they should also go to heaven says done done <laughs> so he says very simple i will manifest myself as somanathishwara you know and the lord of delight the that he is so mild worshiped he says so what about that he says nothing uh, asuras can come there offer little milk milk is uh, knowledge little bit of it's enough you know just a little bit of knowledge and they will go straight to heavens so she says really he says of course take my word so now you know shiva has said who can resist <laughs> neither vishnu nor brahma all of them have to agree he is force incarnate so all the asuras go they offer they enter into heaven now indra is you know wondering ye kya ho gaya so they all go to lord ganesha he says just wait you know it is his play because this is his way of explaining to diti what is the real issue issue is not about going into heaven so they go into heaven and they are roaming around lovely what a lovely you know pomenade and what a lovely uh, you know alcoves and beaches and this is so wonderful heaven is heaven till you know they see kamadhenu so they ask what is this cow he said it will fulfill all your desires is it now the asura start fighting that i'll keep in my house now kamadhenu is everybody's but they want to keep it in their house wherever they see anything they want to appropriate and keep with them so after some time it is not devasur sangram but the asuras start fighting within themselves and heaven becomes hell <laughs> so ultimately they go because nobody can stop lord shiva so they go to jagan mata adya shakti aditi now aditi is in a dilemma because after all her sister and her lord shiva has given the permission so what does she do she tells again ganesha you have to remove this obstacle you stay put don't allow any more asuras to enter so he stays put 
Now on one side, Shiva's word. On the other side, Mother Aditi's word. This is a fascinating story because the second time Shiva wants to, eventually says, Ganesha, you remove from there. Uh, let them go. And that's when Mother Aditi appears and she says, no, unless they are ready, they cannot go enter into that because it will create chaos and disorder. Now, this is a very symbolic story. Mother Diti understands that the problem is not about this or that person. It's about the consciousness. So, the change of consciousness is the fundamental thing. We may belong to any, which we may live in an ashram, doesn't matter. But if the consciousness is not changed, we are the same people. And whatever we may carry that, you know, we have a batch that, you know, I am a prosperity holder. Allow me to enter. Well, show me your consciousness. This is her vision of 1960 which I was referring to. They are the only criteria. The only criteria whether one is ready to enter into the new creation or not. She says that they saw the substance. She said the criteria was neither moral nor intellectual. It was purely psychological. It was purely to see what is the attitude, what is the substance, nothing else. It was none of those criteria that we think, you know, that, you know, gods are very moral beings, far from it, incidentally. But it's about something still greater. It's about the manifestation of truth. So whoever is ready crosses over. So one has to be prepared and become an adhikari for the Swargabhog. If we want to snatch it, we will be nevertheless the same people. And, you know, you give to monkeys, we know what's happening with the nuclear armament now in the hands of all kinds of people and how dangerous it is. So this idea of everybody having the same adhikar over everything is to create another kind of chaos in the world which we see today. There is something called as adhikar bhed. And all this preparation, readiness and effort is to become an adhikari for what is being served to us. Otherwise we will have apach indigestion, spiritual indigestion from Swargbhog. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah, what is an adhikari, please? What is aditi? Uh, adhikari. Adhikari, okay, I'm sorry. So, adhikari is somebody who deserves something. Now, it's an ancient idea of adhikar bhed, mean who deserves it, who doesn't deserve it. It's an idea which in modern times is an anathema. We don't believe in that because modern times everything should be for everybody. Right? This is how it is. Though in practice it doesn't apply. Every time you have a competition, you are actually trying to determine in whatever crude way who is ready and who is not ready. Though it's done on a purely outer level. So, Adhikar Bhed means simply that whether a person is ready to receive what is being offered or not. Now, in ancient time, this was very much respected. That's why we see the story of Eklavya. You know, which is much misunderstood. Because modern perspective... He has a right. Why can't he? He should also learn archery. But in those times, there was their own way of determining whether a person is ready to receive a kind of knowledge or not. Now, it was an imperfect way, without a doubt. By the time it was Mahabharata, it was, you know, imperfect. But there are stories very interestingly. I'll just narrate one story to speak about Adhikar Bhed. Uh, how this story shows how a system of selection for those who are ready for the higher knowledge, how it can get corrupted and how the Rishi with his deeper wisdom, understanding the spirit behind the rules, changes it. So the story goes that there is a boy called, um, you know, uh, Satyakam. 
So he is born of, uh, you know, a lady called Jabali and he says, I want to have the higher knowledge, Brahmagyan. So there is Rishi Gautama, so says, you please try, but everybody can't get into that school. So he goes and asks Rishi Gautama, I want to learn the higher knowledge, so please enroll me. He says, well, I have to see whether you are an Adhikari or not. So how to know the Adhikari? He says, go back to your mom and say, I want to know the family details. This is one of the ways, you know, people see whether, you know, uh, what is the background and everything. So it's a background check whether to grant a visa or not. So the background check, he goes to mom and says, mom, I know you are my mom. Tell me my dad's name so I can fill my form there. And look at the answer the mom gives. She says, you know, my child, basically, you know, my job is that of a maid. So I worked in many houses. And look at the subtlety with which the story is being conveyed. I have worked in many houses, so I don't know who your father is. Nothing else is spoken. I have worked in many houses. I don't know who your father is, but this much I can tell you for sure that I am your mom. So the boy goes and tells the Rishi that, well, my mom says, uh, I don't know who the father is, but I am your mom. And what does the Rishi say? He says a mother who could say this is a very high and noble kind. Now look at it. She's outwardly a maid and obviously, you know, uh, being a subordinate, society is what they have been. It's also a reflection on, we talk about, you know, everything wonderful being in ancient times. Well, if everything was wonderful, we would have launched then only. There were a select few, but the large society was, masses were still the same. So, he says, you can come in because your mother is of a very high and noble kind. Why? Because she has the courage and honesty to speak the truth. So the first level of adhikar, courage, honesty, truthfulness. But what is the way he gives him Brahmagyana? He tells him, you do one thing, you take hundred cows, which are very lean and thin, and go to a forest, come back when they are four hundred and they are all healthy. So Gautama's wife says, what kind of a cruel fellow you are? He says, no, no, don't worry. I know my job. And because this boy has this urge to have Brahmagyana, because he's completely surrendered to his, his guru, that he knows what he is doing. And if this is the path for me, this is the path for me. So he goes and because of this aspiration, the whole nature becomes his teacher. So he learns from a cow, he learns from a well, he learns from the fire. It's again a story that the Guru is everywhere. If there is a keenness to learn, we will learn from every source. And if we are not keen to learn, we may be right at the feet of the Master but learn nothing. So he goes there and because of the aspiration, he comes back eventually with all these cows, tending them, selfless service. And he is filled with the Teja of Brahmagyana. But still it is not enough. So he says and bows down to his Guru... Gautam Rishi and says, now give me Brahmagyan. He says, but I can see that you are already received everything that you need. He says, no, I must receive it from you. Now this last lesson of humility. Now the moment he says, I must receive from you, the Rishi blesses him. And he becomes the next master. None of those, uh, you know, jokers who were learning through books uh, in his ashrama. But this man who with the fire of aspiration grows. So this adhikar means, are we ready inwardly, intellectually, emotionally, uh, you know, vitally, even physically to receive this great truth which is being given to us. And the mother puts it in a different way. She says in integral yoga, if you read, uh, there are no rules. People wonder, what are the rules? 
Do I have to be vegetarian? Well, doesn't matter. Do I have to wear white or uh, yellow or orange or saffron? Doesn't matter. Do I have to put a tilak, uh, put a mala? Doesn't matter. So what is, do I have to sit for meditation at a fixed time? Doesn't matter. Meditation is not necessary. Do I have to do hatha yoga exercise? Not necessary. You can walk up and down the stairs. It's exercise. What is required? One simple rule. Always behave as if the mother is looking at you because she is indeed always present. Now this is a rule very, you know, one can say, okay, okay, this is okay. But tell me something concrete. Now, when mother is asked, she says something very interesting. She says, you know, in ancient times, before you were initiated, you were tested. Adhikar bhed. And she narrates a story of ancient time when a boy is asked by the master to carry a trunk to another city, another village. And he's given only one instruction, don't open and see it. Now without a lock, that too. <laughs> I is curious, what is it? And he has not even put a lock. If it is something so precious, he should have locked it. Now after some time, you know, as they say, curiosity killed the cat, he opens it. And there is a little mouse which jumps out and goes away. He tries to catch, he cannot. And he comes back and says, I am sorry, but you know, you should have told me there is a mouse. He says, it was not the mouse. It was to see whether you have the capacity to obey. Because this is the first lesson. Obedience is a sign of surrender. If we say we have surrendered to the mother, we have read it here, no? The tamasic surrender, I have surrendered to the mother, but I am doing everything which is contrary. At least I must recognize that this is, I am not surrendered in these parts. I am not able to really obey her. So, she says in integral yoga, there are no such tests, which used to be done in ancient times. There are amazing uh, such stories. And I am resisting the temptation not to get into them. But in integral yoga, the tests come very subtly. And she says, don't think they will come when there are big events in your life. Not at all. The trivial events. Somebody passes by and says, hey, you are looking sick today. Somebody is, uh, you know, uh, you have given a you know, nice presentation and somebody says, you know, it was not really up to the mark. Maybe you could have done better. Now, that's the subtle test. And she says, there are three kinds of beings which test us. There are Spiritual beings, forces, they also test us. There are forces of universal nature and there are adverse and hostile forces. So they will not allow us to go. Divine doesn't test us. This idea that divine mother tests us is not true. She knows us. She is on our side. You know, she is the one who will whisper us oh, this way. No, no, this is the route. Quietly, <laughs> you know. If we open to her, even she will take us through the mouth of darkness towards light. She is the one on our side. She is not testing us. But there are cosmic forces. There is a cosmic play. And we have to be the adhikari. So universal nature will test us by saying, you know, all this is too difficult. This is natural. You know, I get angry. So it's okay. You know, what's wrong with uh, being angry? Universal nature. Adverse forces. They will press upon anger and make it much bigger than it is. Hostile forces. Abnormal depressions. Despair. And the spiritual and divine forces which will offer halfway homes of the spirit. Supramental, you know what? It's very difficult. You know, who knows whether it's there or not. Come, come, I'll give you a crash course in nirvana. How many days, sir? One month. One month. Then you think, oh, one life. I don't know how many lives for transformation. This is a crash course. What do I have to do? Nothing. Five thousand dollars. Pound, sorry. That, maybe the rates are much less. <laughs> Excuse me. 
But you don't mind selling a thousand pounds and doing a crash course after one week get a certificate of nirvana. But Shurabinda doesn't do any of that. Why? Because he wants to be true. He doesn't want to, you know, us not to know the challenges and the difficulties. That's why the first page of the mother, many people get frightened. Do not imagine that truth and falsehood can stay. <laughs> this was asked to mother also. She said, no, grace does not recede. But the impression of the person is, I think um, it was put up also on the Oromira Aram, that, uh, you know, I love that, uh, uh, that comes every week. Uh, it's very beautiful. That the grace does not recede. It is... We who by turning away because we are not receptive. So it gives an impression that the grace has receded. The grace never recedes. So all this adhikar bhed is to prepare us for the readiness to receive. Now we may not be immediately an adhikari. Doesn't matter if we are on the path. At least we believe we will become adhikari one day. This is how it has to be seen. That even if today we are not. This in synthesis is described very beautifully in the chapter on self-consecration. That we may not be ready immediately to take the plunge. But let's move on. So one day we cross that, you know, subtle line, unseen line. And we realize that from a believer and a devotee, we have become a disciple of Mother and Shurabindu. Now this line is an unseen line in this yoga. Nobody will tell you that, you know, now you are a disciple, you have been initiated. <laughs> so you have to go by this feel that you have a call for the path. Or simply you are turned to the mother. Shurabinda has given indications. When mother was asked, how do I know that I am initiated into this yoga? She said, when I say I have initiated someone, it means I have revealed myself to that person. So she is no more mother Mira Alphasa from France. She is the mother. You ask logic? Well, I don't know. I feel it like that. That's it. All who are turned to the mother are doing my yoga. Or some people have a call for the path. So he has given some indications. But nobody will tell. Nobody in ashram will say, okay, from today you are a disciple. Even if you join the ashram, 95% mother herself has said are not for the yoga. Only handful are for the yoga. So it is these tests prepare us for actually taking the plunge. That's how it is. And Swami Vivekananda also said very interestingly, he said, first read, then think, then meditate. Let that idea occupy us so completely, then one day we will take a plunge. So taking the plunge is where the journey begins. Before that, it's a preparation. And that's what is the adhikar. Yes. So Alupai, I'm just taking you up on uh, one of the things you just mentioned, um, you know, about the situation where you have the real tests, even the most trivial things. Yes. Um, you, you said, you get an example of somebody came and said, you did that lecture, but it could have been better. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and that is a very common situation, you know, yeah. that's, that's an example. So, you know, part of our reason for this workshop is, you know, changing ourselves. Yes. So using that same example, what would be the, the way to handle such a situation, you know, to say you've done something within yourself such that you are able to cope with such a little test in a trivial event? So, uh, when this happens, and it happens all the time in number of ways, first step is to look inside that what is in me that reacted. Now, this reaction may not be outwardly manifested. It's like inwardly, oh, this fellow, who, who is he to judge me? You know, it can start by that. Meaning that why I have a sense of superiority. 
to start with. So I have to understand that I have to recalibrate myself and practice humility because without humility, walking the path is very dangerous. If I walk with the idea that I'm a big man, I'm a great man, then I've already started going downward without realizing it, you know, digging a ditch right by the side. So first thing is to look inside and become conscious about one's reactions. Where is this reaction stemming from? This is one. Now, if we discovered that the criticism was correct, uh, I mean, maybe there was actually a flaw. Fine. So I look inside and discover why this flaw came. The divine work should be flawless. And I'm giving an example of divine work. It can apply to any kinds of work. So I may look, look, you know, uh, let's take a different example that, you know, one goes, gives a lecture in like, let's say in medical field and other things. So you discover that, you know, I had prepared well for the lecture, but today I had a fight at home and it came and interfered with my expression. So there is something one has learned that one was not in the right state of consciousness. So one didn't allow the divine to flow through. Maybe I was self-conscious. Maybe I was looking for praise. Maybe I was looking for a promotion. Hundred things. So one begins to become more aware of where the flaw is. The flaw comes basically from the ego and desire self. This is the uh, two main interferers. Uh, ego because it limits the scope and desire self because it creates a lot of noise. So when these two go away, we become more and more self-unconscious, I mean unconscious word using in the different sense, and more conscious of the divine working through us and in us, then the work also becomes more and more perfect. You know, that's what Sri Krishna says in the Gita, Yogaha Karma Sukoshalam. And it says the more you become impersonal, the more surrendered, the more the work will become uh, perfect. Whether it's a lecture or uh, washing utensils or our human interactions of everyday life. So this is how we have to grow. Now, what if we discover, no, everything was fine. Like, you know, I have a criteria by which I know about uh, a talk, whether it was nice or not. I mean, nice is not a nice, nice, but you know, whether it was. So I know that whether it flew from there and I know it by the kind of ananda which I experience inside. Now, somebody may say that, you know, you forgot that point or this point doesn't matter because I've experienced that joy which comes from the creative influx. There are other instances and there are real things I'm saying where people say, oh, that talk was very nice, but I know it was not very nice. Because I know that there was something which was interfering with it. So the criteria is inside. So then we realize the second step is that well, if human opinions, human judgments have no not much meaning. You know, mother gives that example of somebody appreciating a painting and you know, one doesn't even know a painting. And one is you know saying, oh this is wonderful, which was nothing but palette scrapings. That's how she, you know, spoke about <laughs> was that Rembrandt. So she said, oh, this is wonderful. And he said, nobody was buying my painting, but he is uh, asking something which is my palette scraping, say modern art. So <laughs> you see, birth of modern art. And well, that only indicates that human opinions ultimately are worth nothing. Whose opinion is worth his? Of course, the divine. And the divine's way is that he does not judge, but just corrects us. And the indication that the divine is happy with us is that there will be an increase in joy and there will be an increase in peace. All divine action is accompanied with a sense of peace and joy. And if we don't have access to that, then the opinion of those who are in contact with truth in some way or the other. So a lot of people, well, they, they may like, even equally, they may like, but that should not puff us up. Oh, see, you know, so many people appreciate it. It doesn't matter. 
so it gives us we have to it gives us an opportunity as you rightly said to work upon ourselves and improve ourselves from a point where we are narrowly shut in an ego identity that i am mr so and so to a point where you know you are completely all your identities are merged into the one and you have no other identity except through the one and in the one that is the state we have to arrive at so neither praise that's why the gita insists and shurubindo if you see synthesis maximum pages are dedicated to the practice of one thing and that is equality so we have to just practice equanimity it's very beautifully explained both in the gita and uh, synthesis of yoga how to practice equanimity because it's the base for work of the divine in the world equanimity is not needed for a traditional gyana yogi it's not needed even for a bhakti yoga but for a karma yogi and for the yogi of integral self perfection we need equanimity because otherwise we cannot because equanimity is the knot through which the work is done in the world if i have to withdraw into you know god through my ecstatic bhakti i don't need equanimity i just merge into the lord and i am jumping dancing it doesn't matter or if i want to go into traditional gyana it doesn't matter because i am not going to let that gyana translate in i in fact i believe that works are a bondage but any person following the path of the gita and the path of shurabindo's integral yoga has to lay equanimity as the firm foundation so for all this and many other things equanimity at all the three levels physical level the gita summarizes in half a shloka sheet oshna sukh dukheshu hani labhu jaya jeo even guru nanak says you know astuti ninda dau tyagi khoje tab nirvana so basically it means that sheetoshan the changes of weather temperature uh, outwardly they shouldn't affect us they affect us to start with but we have to practice that indifference that well i am happy surrender is one of the ways of equanimity uh, endurance is another way of equanimity indifference is a third way a philosophical understanding is a fourth way of practicing equanimity whatever is the way sheetoshan you know the vagaries of nature sukh dukheshu things which create the sense of joy and sorrow they both have to be surrendered they are at the vital level sukh dukh hani labo again at the vital level oh, what uh, i lost so much and i gained so much and jaya jeo one may win one may lose so of course to that we should add also the equanimity at the ideative level now ideative level we see if we read the second chapter of the mother since you know in that context you'll see rejection so he says all one sided opinions and viewpoints of the mind otherwise there is a you know lack of equanimity so uh, let's say people interpret a scripture and say this is the only way now this is a lack of equanimity this is how it is revealed to me maybe it is revealed in a different way to somebody else you know like that bonsai uh, arrangement of flowers the master arranges it and then leaves the scissor why because maybe somebody else may make it more perfect so when we live with this state of wonder childlike wonder humility and equanimity that well this is what i could do or could be done through me uh, but there are better ways different ways then we arrive even at a mental equanimity there are different ways of looking at it and when we arrive at some kind of reasonable equanimity equanimity is still deeper it's a equanimity of the soul ultimately you know there is a whole long passage in savitri one of the longest which comes in uh, you know 
the release from ignorance where he says a vast unanimity ended life's debate uh, i am just giving a clue we can search it later on and it goes on to say that how all this you know success failure everything is understood at the end of the day Uh, his mind was free of all disputes and he was reposed in the self ultimately it will deepen into the vision of the self in which there is perfect equanimity but to start with we should practice it so all these things point out that we are not in a state of equanimity which is an imperfection for yoga so for yoga we have to practice it yes it's also yeah sorry it's also what we value more do i value the uh, you know do i want to change myself according to what people may you know praise or uh, you know may not praise that means i'll go into a very different direction it's ambition which may drive me or i want to change based on when the divine mother may say bravo my child you know and it's so interesting it's the inner state amal kiran this one little example then we'll take the other one uh, amal kiran once uh, you know made a little painting or something and he showed to the mother mother says you know this portion is very good he was wondering that you know everything looks nice to him <laughs> then he realized that he was making that portion he was constantly remembering her you see that inner state becomes so important so we have to think whom are we want to please we want to please the world or we want to please the lord and that's a very very difficult choice very difficult choice and yet at some point we have to make that choice i'm not saying we have to tell people we don't want to please you that's arrogance but inwardly we should be clear that whom do we want to live for and then everything will become a path yes yes sorry yeah please go ahead <laughs> so even in in it sort of all the things you were saying also so even if one is fe- uh, quite often feeling that peace joy in being surrounded by you know for example like these workshops or listening to you or listening to you know other talks or reading i mean you know mother and shogun reading reading yes words. i mean that just fills you uh, it's overwhelming and at the same time something still feels dissatisfied yes is it because one has experience and knows that there is more and which is why even at whatever level of peace and joy and calm that one is feeling at the time is that in a way pointing to saying an invitation almost that come there is more yes of course certainly see peace is one thing satisfaction is another satisfied person is a dead person so it's wonderful to keep that little divine dissatisfaction in the life divine shobinda says that that you know an animal is satisfied with his modicum of necessities there are people who say we have a very satisfied life <laughs> and we know what it means and the gods are content with their splendor both are unfit for progress but it is human being who is the most dissatisfied of 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 all and therefore he alone can be seized with a frenzy to you know realize those splendors so there should not be that of course by dissatisfaction it doesn't mean we should be restless impatient but we must know that whatever uh, we have we may have achieved is a way of saying is nothing compared to what lies before us so this dissatisfaction should be born out of humility that's why in you know isha upanishad so beautifully it says avigyatam vijanata avigyatam avijanata he who thinks he knows knows it not he who has not the thought of it knows it 
Meaning thereby there is and really you know if we look at divine as infinite, who can say that I possess the infinite? Who can say that I have known all the infinite? Who can say that you know I know everything about the absolute? None can, and that makes it so beautiful. Frankly speaking, it means always there is a wonder. Of course, then what is the difference? Well, there is a line we cross. Beyond which we are out of ignorance. So you know we are always in delight and peace, as you said, and we have crossed over from the fundamental ignorance. But there is no end to the wonders of the infinite. So even after crossing that line, the supermind is not the end of the journey. It is the starting point of a much trem- more tremendous journey. But the difference is, below the supramental, we labor from asadoma, sadgamya, tamasoma, jyotirgamya, mrittorma, mritamgamya. After we have crossed the line, it is light to greater light, freedom to greater freedom, delight to greater delight. So there is a fundamental difference. But there is no end to the disclosures of the infinite. And in the smallest things, the mother speaks of a supramental experience where she says, the water running from the tap, the toothpaste, they are all dancing with joy. All of this is a disclosure. Now, you know, this is amazing. <laughs> so, and why not? We are born for that. In every element, in every fiber, we must experience delight. Each part in us desires the absolute. Even the darkest part, our smallest parts have room for deepest needs. Nothing can be left out in the end. So some dissatisfaction means that uh, obviously it's a good reminder that look there is much more. So let's not rest and become bourgeois ideal. Now I have got peace and I'm so wonderful. I had the experience of, you know, I had a vision of Divine Mother. And, you know, I had this transcendent peace when I sit for meditation. I'm done with. (laughs) Divine has no use of such a creature except in a museum. That here he is done with. (laughs) We don't want to be museum specimens. We want to be workers on the field. Yeah? (laughs) Okay, yeah. Lovely. Anybody, any other questions? Yeah, the truth and falsehood will continue to coexist on this earth consciousness until human soul completely rejects falsehood. Purposefully, falsehood is here. Casino will operate in city until all people say, no, I don't want to go to casino. So one day, the gods will say, oh, Falsehood, go to back, go back to your pavilion now. But it, it's a long way. Yeah, yes, if left to human beings, it would not happen. But there is grace, so we must, you know, lean on the grace. If left to poor us, poor mortals, you know, we don't even know what is truth and falsehood. When Mother was asked that, it is written in the Upanishad, Satya Mevajete Nanritam Satya Nepantha Vitato Devyana. But we don't see that, you know, good is winning. She said, first of all, each of us believes that I am a good guy. That is the first falsehood. I am good, others are bad. Then we discover, oh my God, even I have same things like everybody else. I am no special category. Then we start working and it's a long journey, no doubt. But that's where she says, remember there is grace. She says that we are precisely living in an age when men are not left to act according to the strength or weakness. Of their own efforts. We are not living in that age. The grace is there. The help is there. And now with the supramental truth consciousness. We have everything which is there for the leap over. And uh, let's you know. Leap over the leap. That only one monkey. I mean Hanumanji. Not monkey but uh, divine monkey. Uh, he was the key to man. So you know he leaped over from. Um, 
this side to the other side and return back let us uh, hope that now we have at least 100000 uh, mans human beings who will leap over <laughs> by the grace so what does hanuman ji say same story applies he wants to leap and he says i don't have i forgotten i don't remember that i can do it so jump one reminds him first that no you are this you are that and then he says oh with the name of the lord i can cross over so this story is indicative that what we cannot do by our own efforts the same thing that's how the gita ends wherever there is an instrument like arjuna and wherever there is krishna there there is victory it's not either alone so we must remember that in all our efforts even a drop of effort we have an ocean of grace backing up that little drop so when we remember the grace lean on it we must do the effort it's given to us but uh, we must know that whatever effort we may do whatever ultimate there is ultimately the grace which will fulfill and that's what is the last uh, passage maybe i can just read it before we you know just the last part i want to read one sentence you know the power but that the change may arrive take form and endure there is needed the call from below with a will to recognize and not deny the light when it comes and there is needed the sanction of the supreme from above the power that mediates between the sanction and the call is the presence and power of the divine mother the mother's power and not any human endeavor and tapasya can alone rend the lid and tear the covering and shape the vessel and bring down into this world of obscurity and falsehood and death and suffering truth and light and life divine and the immortals ananda Please, if you have a few minutes, there's one sentence in uh, two paragraphs before. Yes, please. Can I ask? Yes. Yes, please. The rapidity and complexity of her vision and action outrun its stumbling and its stumbling comprehension. The measures of her movement are not its measures. Bewildered by the swift alteration of her many different personalities. her making of rhythms and her breaking of rhythms her accelerations of speed and her retardations her varied ways of dealing with the problem of one and of another her taking up and dropping now of this line and now of that one and the gathering of them together it will not recognize the way of the supreme power when it is circling and sweeping upwards through the maze of the ignorance to a supernal light open rather your soul to her and be content to feel, feel her with a psychic nature It carries on but that previous sentence what does that uh, yes see basically it is uh, very logical if we put it like that if the mind could understand the ways of the lord then he would not be the lord but something inferior to the mind so here shurabindu is reminding us something which is self evident that the lord's ways are not the ways that the human mind likes it to be his purpose of punishing virtue with defeat 
His purpose of making Kansa sit on the throne. His purpose of giving Trilok Raj to Ravana. Now, the human mind which thinks linearly in a small space of time cannot recognize the global way of the triple time vision in which the Lord acts. He does not act only on the immediate. He looks at the lives gone behind and lives that are going to come. Second, even there, that one way he deals with us doesn't mean the same way he will deal with everyone. You see, he may deal with one person when mother was asked that, Mother, we want to be like uh, Champaklalji. She said, Oh, is it? Then she said, Ask him how severely he has been dealt with. So, you see, to prepare, so different people, he deals very differently. To some, he gives the throne. This was also asked that, Why does the divine give to uh, people who are making all kinds of errors and chaos a lot of money? This question was asked. She said, well, uh, the divine doesn't think like human beings. Because if he were to think like that, then there would be no world. So what does he do? He says, okay, you take what you want. So what happens in the process? You realize what you have bartered and bargained for. So you see, it's like, uh, you know, when you have a pure diamond and you settle for something much less. You were to get the pure diamond, but you have settled for uh, imitation, you know, jewelry or maybe gold. And uh, you say, okay, fine. So you take it. Now divine, why is he giving? He is giving because what you are losing is the pure diamond. So at some point, when you get it and realize that, look, you know, uh, that's what I am looking for, is a much more complete method. Then if he says, no, 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 I am going to deny you the gold because you have to only try for the diamond. So the divine's way is like that. In giving, in not giving, you know, heaven's um, greater love rejects the mortal's prayer. Line from Sabitri. So this is why he is saying that divine methods cannot be known by the mind. Because mind works linearly. Good and bad, good guy must get this, bad guy. I mean, the divine should value what I value. He doesn't. As simple as that. (laughs) He should act the way I act. He doesn't. He should punish. The divine doesn't punish. Actually, he never punishes anyone. If he punished, who will stand before and say, I am, I can't be punished. Mother says, don't invoke justice because if justice were to manifest, nobody will be able to stand. So divine vision is where he neither condemns nor punishes. These are all anthropomorphic ways of looking at the divine. There is something called as justice, but that's a different thing. It has to do with balance of creation. It is not about justice. So maintain the balance of creation. But what is true is that the divine constantly helps us to move forward each according to his law of being, which is called as Swadharma. To a Kshatriya, he will say, go and fight. To a Buddha, he will say, go into the forest and meditate. And one may wonder, what is this divine doing? Both of us asked him, but Arjuna, he said, no, fight against your own people. And to Buddha, he is saying, go into the forest and meditate on the cosmic problems. That's where we have the whole idea of Yugdharma, Swadharma, you know, to allow for individual variations in our journey. It is because of this individual variation that the Gita speaks about Sudharma. Otherwise, it's very simple, tamas to rajas to sattva to spiritual consciousness. And that's what he is telling us. So how do we know about the divine ways? We will be bewildered. He says, bring out the psychic. Psychic knows it by an inner vision and feeling. And it is the only part which is directly in touch with the divine. But the mind cannot. Mind will be completely bewildered. So he is giving us a clue that bring out the psychic. First step.
Thank you very much. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can uh, come. We can just complete this sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Can you? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Open rather your soul to her, and be content to feel her with the psychic nature, and see her with the psychic vision that alone make a straight response to the truth. Then the mother herself will enlighten by their psychic elements your mind and heart and life and physical consciousness and reveal to them too her ways and her nature. So that's the key given to us, the psychic being. And the first step in this yoga is actually to bring out the psychic being. So with that uh, wonderful I mean, note, maybe we can stop. Thank you very much, Alok Bhai. Um, Thank you. We will um, stop by um, playing some music, uh, uh, Sunil Das music, uh, do Canto 6, track 6. And uh, before before we all depart, um, I uh, felt thanks from all of us at uh, Master George for your participation. And we hope that we can um, ask you to join us again in the future. Yes. Thank you. It's a joy. It's a joy to be together. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I feel like as if I'm in Pondicherry now. Yes, thank you. (laughs)